People First companies understand that employees are their most valuable asset. These forward-thinking companies treat all of their people practices, especially hiring, as strategic rather than administrative functions. I'm Donald Knight, Chief People Officer at Greenhouse, and this is People First, a podcast celebrating the work of leaders dedicated to building people-first cultures. Today, I'm chatting with Everett Taylor, CEO of Kickstarter, and Elisa Columbani, Chief People Officer of Artsy. Everett and Elisa first worked together at Artsy, and since then, the two have done amazing things at their respective companies. In this episode, we will talk about how to foster company culture from the ground up, understanding the alignment between business needs and your people, and why you should treat your employees like a sports team instead of customers. Please welcome Everett Taylor and Elisa Columbani. Super excited to see both of y'all. This is amazing. We got Aliza. We got Everett. This is going to be great. But for the listeners who don't know who you are, Aliza, tell them who you are, where do you like to pour your time, talent, and treasure? And then if you were an ice cream flavor, what would you be and why? All right. I'm Aliza Kalambani. I'm the chief people officer at Artsy. Uh, She, her pronouns. And I've been at Artsy for seven years. I would say I've built my career there. Prior to that, I was in basically food tech. So companies that were technology companies trying to change the way we consume food. And a lot of parallels actually between sort of small producers and artists that really are cut out of kind of big industry and um, often don't get their, their due and yet are such a kind of critical part of our creative culture. So yeah, I've been at Artsy for seven years. I was telling you before this, it's been incredible to get to build the culture from scratch. Um, It's one of the things that's kept me there for so long. When you like build a team from person one, you kind of cherish each person you've brought on and every piece of the culture you've built and um, feel very, very lucky. That's awesome. And then ice cream flavor. Ice cream flavor. Um, I mean, that's super important. Yeah, yeah. And how it connects to my personality, of course. So I would go with chocolate chip cookie dough. Nice. I think that's the first ice cream that I had like a really strong connection to. Okay. I remember being like eight years old and going to Dairy Queen and getting a blizzard and picking out every single chocolate chip cookie dough chunk and saving it for last. I think that really (laughs) speaks to my personality of finding the things that you really, really value and putting lots of attention on them. That's amazing. Cookie dough. Cookie dough. Love to hear it. E, what you got? What's up, man? You know what's so cool? She's like a big foodie, too. Like, I, I love that you came from the food space. I, I, I haven't thought about that, but Elisa's a big foodie. She has all the restaurant recommendations. Uh, my name is Everett Taylor, pronouns he, him. Uh, I am currently CEO of Kickstarter. I've been there almost seven months now. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, we are the largest crowdfunding site for creative projects. Um, before that, I was at the premier marketplace for buying and selling art with Elisa here at Artsy as their CMO. And then my career has really um, ranged between being marketer, um, business executive, as well as a founder and entrepreneur myself. Um, so I've had a vast amount of experience across e-commerce, digital marketing, et cetera, et cetera. I've been very, very fortunate. I'm originally from Richmond, Virginia, and somehow made my way here to uh, New York. Awesome. And now my ice cream, right? Uh, I would have to say, this might be a little bit boring. I'm going to go with chocolate. Okay. Not only is it my favorite ice cream, but I'm going to go, well, actually fish food from Ben & Jerry's is my favorite. But I'm going to go with chocolate because 
I think chocolate is consistent no matter what. Like I go anywhere, it's consistent. I know what to expect. I know what that ice cream is going to give me. And I feel like I reflect that in who I am as a person. You know what you're going to get with me every single time. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to be authentic. And I think chocolate ice cream is that. Plus, it's not vanilla. You know what I'm saying? So I like, you know, chocolate. I like it. Nice classic. Yeah. Sticks with everybody. And then I love the cookie dough. Saving the chunks at the end had to be hard, though. It had to be be strategic with your spoon. It was worth it. (laughs) Nice. People First Podcast. Everybody may wonder, how do you both define what a people first leader is? So two different types of roles. So I'm curious to get both of your input. Elisa, like you're a chief people officer. You're curating culture from the ground up. What does it mean to be people first for you? And how has that impacted like Artsy? Yeah. So I think primarily what I think about when I think about a people first culture is about respecting people's individual strengths and sort of helping people know themselves and helping know how to deploy people to get the best out of them and the best out of the team. And I think at Artsy, that's meant um, trying to create an environment where we try to avoid that sort of adversarial, like employer-employee dynamic that I've so often seen kind of at all different kinds of companies where it's about like, how can I get the most out of you for as little as possible? Or on the employee side, how can I get kind of the most money and career development out of you by giving as little as possible, I think it really leaves both sides feeling pretty demoralized. And you're always sort of watching your back. And it's, I think, a, no one does their best work. Um, no company gets the best results and no individual kind of does their best work in that kind of environment. So we've tried to create an environment where we treat everybody like adults. <laughs> we try to be as honest with people as possible about what to expect, what not to expect, what success looks like. And then we try to find the best people whose natural talents and interests actually align with what we need. And, you know, let them do their best work. And, you know, we try to avoid micromanaging. We try to avoid a lot of top-down mandates. We think if we hire the right people and we give them all the information and context they need to be successful, you don't need to have that sort of adversarial policing, micromanaging type of culture that I think um, goes nowhere fast. Yeah. There's a whole wave of leaders that are exiting the workplace right now just based on tenure and being eligible for retirement that embrace this idea of command and control Mm -hmm. as opposed to what you're saying, which is like, how do I curate this environment where people can be as successful as they want to be because we're giving them the tools and we let them know what the expectations are. I like that you want people to do the best work of their lives. There's not a lot of people like you. We need more CPOs. I believe that's the difference between CPOs and CHROs. E, you used to be at Artsy. You've experienced that culture. What does people first mean to you? And then like, how has your experience there at Artsy impacted the way that you're driving being people first at Kickstarter? Well, I learned from the best right here. Uh, No, seriously, um, I I say this all the time. And and, and even before we did this, I was like, Elisa is the best people person I've ever worked with. Not, Not only the best people person I've ever worked with in my career, one of the best executives that I've worked with in my career. She's absolutely incredible. And I think it's very important to see people who run the people operation as executives because they're strategic partners in a business, just like a CFO, just like a CTO, just like a CMO. And so I learned a lot observing Elisa. And one of the things that I learned a lot from my artsy experiences, everything that she just said, right, Um, in, in terms of her definition of putting people first, but also 
making the best decisions for the business, right? Like things never being personal, right? Doing the best you can for people, looking out for them, uh, making a way for them to really grow into their full selves. But at the same time, understanding it's still a business. And like the balance between the two, I think was a very healthy balance at RT. Treating people the right way, taking care of them, hearing them out, you know, being a therapist at times, but at the same time, also understanding that we're running a business. I've seen, you know, HR and people organizations that are like too far on one end where it's like, do you guys have any empathy? Like, and then I've seen others where it's like, you're being almost too people first, where it's like, you're not even making the right choices for the business itself, Artsy has such a healthy balance. And I took those learnings watching Elisa, watching Mike, my former CEO, and I took a lot of those learnings, especially being a young executive myself, to Kickstarter now, where I kind of implement that same kind of idea of being like someone who's empathetic, listening, doing the best we can for our employees, but at the same time, also making the right decisions for our business always. That's that's something that is really, really important to me. And that's what I learned at Artsy. And the thing kind of being in the CEO seat in that Kickstarter that I've learned even at a higher level that I would say that I've like kind of expanded on since my time at Artsy is that how people feel, their growth and development, their physical, mental, emotional well-being, you should have metrics. Those should be goals, like business goals, just as much as revenue just as much as growth, right? And my duty as CEO is not only to just grow the business, but also take care of the people at the same time. It's so interesting for you to say that. First of all, I'm glad you gave her her flowers while she can still smell them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need, we need to do that more often. Yeah. And so often people leaders, Elisa may not say this, but I'll say this on, on our behalf. So often the business is so intentional in making sure we deliver what the business needs that often those words of affirmation don't necessarily come back. So to see you do that live and unscripted, I, re- I, I appreciate just seeing it. I know how that may make you feel. I think this idea around, you said something that I, I want to drill down on. You said being two people first. And like one of the things I want to make sure listeners understand is that giving employees everything they want is not people first. People first means, at least from my perspective, that when you make business decisions, that you do so with people in mind, that you take into account the impact that it may have or how disruptive it may be or how it could be an accelerator to their dreams, their hopes, their wishes in order for them to do the best work of their lives. But this idea that you just give them everything and you don't think about the impact on the business, I, I don't believe that's people first. No, that's great. Totally. That's great, yeah. yeah. And I think there's like a rise of chief people officers like Elisa who can be commercially focused and recognize that I can understand the people impact and still prioritize business need, that you don't have to sacrifice people needs and business needs, that they somewhat merge together. It sounds like that's how you've been able to drive success there at Artsy. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm far from a sports nut, but I, <laughs> I really do think of running a company like running a sports team. And I think sometimes employees think they should be like the customer or something. Like we're there to serve them. I actually think that doesn't do them justice. I think it's way more meaningful to feel like you're part of a team. And on a team, you get pushed, you get challenged, you do what's best for the greater team and for the win. 
And that doesn't mean that you sacrifice everything for the team. It doesn't mean that you put your own health aside, but it does mean that you have a common goal. And I think the feeling of having a common goal with people you trust and respect is so much more meaningful than being a consumer, being a customer of the company you work for. And so when I think about like, what's the right sort of trade-off between giving people what they want and like riding them like they're just, you know, disposable, sort of neither, right? It's this different model where you need people to feel like they have each other's backs, like they're part of this bigger whole. And I think that's what people want from like a meaningful career is like feeling like they're doing important work with people they care about. But you don't get that from that sort of like customer perspective where you're like, do all this stuff from your company, like you're consuming this job. But you also like, you know, you need to have a level of respect and care from your employer that you want to give that effort and you think that goal is worthwhile. I'm so glad you said this. There's people who are going to listen to this right now and they will start to question, should they be at the organizations that they are in right Absolutely. now? Absolutely. Yep. Because they may not feel like they have people first leaders there. Everett, you've been able to like migrate from being an entrepreneur to being an executive, reporting to a CEO and now becoming a CEO of your own, what does that look like for you as far as how do you make sure that you're cultivating the right environment where these types of traits that Elisa is talking about, being respectful, being mindful of how these decisions impact those folks inside of the organization, how do you make sure that you maintain that culture or help contribute to creating an environment where that culture is maintained? Yeah, I think number one is like, authenticity always, you know, always being true and being honest and transparent always. Where it starts to get mixed up is when you're not being that person. And so for me, it's like, I'm always stepping through with authenticity. And I tell my team, I say, listen, you're not going to like everything I have to say. That's just straight up. But I'm always going to be honest with you. And I'm always going to have the business and the people at this company's best interest in mind. So always being completely authentic and transparent in everything that we do and, and what we're trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish at the company is like paramount is what I've seen. Also, I think actively listening and showing accountability has been huge. You know, being able to say, hey, we messed up here or we didn't do this thing right. The same way we're holding everyone from the lower level, you know, up to accountability, it has to be from the top down as well, from executives, from leaders, people seeing that humility and people seeing that, hey, we mess up too, or we made a mistake here, or we could have done this thing better has been really transformational, I think, within the organization. And then also being in partnership right? It's like, we're trying to figure this out together. We're trying to figure out how to grow this business together. We're trying to figure out how we're making a better culture together. Like, I need your input. I need your feedback. And I love when people give me very critical feedback. You know, Elisa would always give me feedback. And like, I always appreciated that. Like, I appreciate that open model of feedback. Like our, the CEO at Artsy would always say feedback is a gift, right? And I, I really truly believe that in like establishing the culture that you want to have. Totally agree. Kim Scott, Radical Candor. It's a Absolutely. free plug. I get no royalties from that book. <laughs> yeah, it's a um, great framework. But we, we do Radical Candor at yeah. Greenhouse and we allow uh, our skip levels. So like my CEO meets with all of my directs and aggregates that in an anonymized way. 
And that really sets the tone for the things that I want to work on for the next quarter. And so this idea that there's constant improvement as a leader and listening to their voices is super important. One of the things I wanted to make sure I point out, I asked you both what your favorite ice cream is. And I've always make sure that I um, subscribe to leading by example. So I probably should have went first after right. uh, asking you what, what your ice cream is that expresses who you are. The ice cream that expresses me the most, at least right now in the moment, is Jenny's Cinnamon Skillet. So shout outs to Jenny. I'm a huge <laughs> fan. Um, apparently, ever has been able to meet her. So I, I look forward to following your footsteps in that regard. <laughs> but the reason I choose that one is because it's one of those ice creams that you're not going to just get that from anywhere. And after you have it, I mean, not everybody falls in love with that ice cream, but after you've had it, you know that you haven't tasted any ice cream like that. And my goal as a leader is to always leave people better than I found them. And so I want my impact to be like that ice cream. I always try to navigate life and like, hey, did I leave that person better? Did they walk away with a negative connotation of who I was? And you can't win everybody. Like, that's not the goal. But the goal is if I'm moving that intentional as a leader, that they will know that I indeed put people first. These pressures of living up to that responsibility all the time is rather difficult because life happens. So for the folks that may be like Elisa or Everett, give us a vulnerability moment. Like when has there been a time where you were like, oh, I might not have gotten it right as a leader. And then like, what did you do to like go back to make sure that that situation was much better afterwards? Ooh, good question. I have one right off the top. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, So when I came to Kickstarter, they, you know, did a pilot for the four day work week. Mm. And I mean, (laughs) I mean, you know, even the environment from artsy, like it's not, that's not really an environment that I came from or like just in my life as an entrepreneur is like this idea of like having 80% you know, work week and things like that. It just was like kind of crazy for me. Yeah. And so on day one, during my time at Kickstarter, I had to decide if we were going to extend, you know, for like another six months as pilot or make a permanent decision or whatever. And I said, listen, I'm going to, you know, extend this for now and like observe. And I let my own bias, because I know I'm working seven days a week. I know that I'm working more than 40 hours a week and things like that. I think I let my own bias kind of color how I felt about the four-day work week. And you don't even realize it, that you may speak about it in a way that's not fair, right? You may speak about it, like when I would speak about it to the team, I would talk about it in a way where I probably wasn't as pro or like, you know, unbiased as I should have been um, initially with it. And my team, you know, we have our surveys, we have Culture Amp too. And, uh, you know, people called me out for that. They called me out like, hey, like, how do you feel about this? It doesn't seem like you're pro this, you know, like they really called me out on this. And it was interesting by the time I got the surveys, I had actually came around to the four day work week because I realized that I was judging it by productivity. And like, I wanted to see us be able to be more productive, which isn't actually fair because truly it's about being as productive as you would be in a five-day work week. And so I was looking at it from a productivity level because I heard, oh, we've been more productive. So I was looking, I was like, "Mm, I don't feel like we're more productive. And we, you know, Kickstarter is a turnaround job. It's like, you know, we have been stagnant for a while. And so I wasn't comfortable with the idea of cutting the work week. But then I realized that it was more about how people were feeling. And what I did was, after I got some of that feedback initially, was like actually sitting down and talking with people about 
the four-day work week and how they felt and the changes that it was having in their life that was beyond what we talked about, revenue and growth and things like that. And when I talk to parents who got to spend more time with their kids, people who like, hey, actually get to go to the doctor, do the things that I need to do and take care of and feel more energized in my work, I realized that I had made a mistake you know, initially with the way that I handled it. And I took a step back and I actually apologized. I apologized to the team. I said, look, I could have handled that better. I could have spoken to more people, got more insights about this. But, you know, you come in as a CEO and you're like, I got to grow, 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 grow this thing. And I made a mistake not fully listening and really taking in the insights that I should have. And now, you know, we've made that a thing. Like it's not a pilot anymore. We've instituted a four-day work week at Kickstarter. Dude, that's one of the most highly controversial decisions businesses are facing right now. Yeah. Whether they go to a four day work week or not. Kudos to you for recognizing that there was some perceptions yeah. that your team was having. I'm curious to see how this works out. It sounds like it's working really well for Kickstarter. You know, cut a day off the week, people are gonna be happy, <laughs> you know, but it's about making sure that we maintain you know, productivity and and continue to hit our goals and things like that. Like that's extremely important, but the impact that it's having in the lives of our employees is incredible. And I realized for me, like I still have a little bit of that hustle, startup hustle mentality ingrained in me is not always the most healthiest, you know? And so I think it's important as a leader, when you go into a company that you bring your culture in but also you partner with the culture that already exists to build something together. Totally and great. I could have done that better in that regard. No, man, that's a, that's a great learning. So many times companies try to hire for culture fit. And I've tried to encourage our team to look for folks that accelerate our culture, which means by definition, they may be different and that's okay. We want them to be able to accelerate the culture. And so in, in doing so, they'll still have that acclimation period. So it sounds like during your acclimation period, you had to learn a little bit about the four-day work week. Oh, yeah. They had already <laughs> had six months to kind of experience it. I was experiencing it in real time. Yeah. So for me, it was a little bit more difficult. But yeah, yeah man, it's, it's all a learning process. That's amazing. Alisa, what about you? Mine's a little nerdier, more HR y. Nice. Um, <laughs> nice. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is when Mike, our artsy CEO, joined the company a couple of years ago. I'd say it was a turnaround story, but I think there was definitely, you know, he'd been sort of plateauing in growth for a while and, um, you know, new leader, new perspective. And so I think we had an opportunity to make some changes to maybe change our values. We changed a number of things about our business model. And one of the things we looked at was how much we were spending on benefits. We were, way over market for what we were offering in health benefits. Um, and it was costing the company a ton of money. And we had a really young workforce that honestly wasn't using our benefits that much and had no skin in the game because we were kind of covering all the costs. And so we moved to a model where we were still very much very generous health plans, but we did ask employees to have some skin in the game and to make some contributions towards their premiums. And I have no regrets about that. I think that was absolutely the right move. The way that we rolled it out, I think, was not as transparent as it should have been. We were honest, but we were sort of like somewhat last minute in our announcement. I think we knew that there would be a number of people who would be frustrated by the increased costs. And so, you know, we shared the information, but we didn't make a big deal out of it. And in retrospect, I realized that we were all sort of just, we were all living a little bit in fear of employee reactions. 
And we got tons of blowback from that. I probably employees that would have understood if we had just sat them down and said, here's our thought process. Here's where we think we're doing the, the right thing for the business while still taking care of you. We're like, what are you trying to sneak by us? Like, what is this change? Like, I don't trust this. Now, whatever you tell me, I'm going to feel like it can't be the full story. Um, and, you know, I had sort of been like, well, how much are people really going to understand like contribution percentages to their premiums, blah, blah, blah. And the truth is that people wanted to know and they deserve to know sort of the full picture of why we'd made that business decision, exactly what the math had been, the research we had done on the benchmarking side. And something that, you know, is sort of like a basic HR communication at most places had turned into like this much bigger deal than it needed to be. And I think that really taught me and I think the whole kind of leadership team, just be honest and trust that people can get it. Trust that people may not like what they want to hear, but you're always going to be in a better position and set the company up for success if you're just real with people about the whole picture and how you're making those trade-offs. I knew that as a leadership team, we were making it for the right reasons and we were balancing, you know, making sure we had a sustainable business and could maintain all of these jobs and hit profitability um, and that we were making, you know, the right call. But when you don't lead with that openness, you let people assume that you have kind of worse intent than you do. And so it was a learning moment, I think, for me of like trusting our employees, trusting our team. If we're going to hire really smart people, we should give them all the information they are owed to feel like we have their back and that the company is is looking out for them. I appreciate your vulnerability. So often we're expected to have it all together. And so to know that you had a learning from that is super impressive. All right. It's my favorite question of the entire podcast. Let's go. All right. <laughs> There's so many leaders listening to this right now and soon to be leaders that are wondering, like, what's the one thing they, they can take from you both as successful leaders in your in your paths, right? So I'll start with you, Everett, because we'll save the best for last. Okay. Don't mind at all. What's the one thing you want listeners to walk away from? as it relates to leadership? What's one word or one encouragement that you could give them for them to consider as they're, you know, traversing their own leadership path? I think it's like a double-sided thing. Have more empathy for your leaders as you're learning to be a leader. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I see a lot of people that aspire to be chief people officers, CEOs, CMOs, and things like that. And I think sometimes there's like an overcritical nature in how they're viewing leaders and seeing leaders. And every leader knows this. Once you get to the other side, you understand so much better, right? And so what I would challenge people to do is instead of being critical about your leaders, which you should always get feedback and things like that, try to understand your leaders and empathize with your leaders more because I promise you, you're going to understand that on the flip side later. And for leaders that are listening to this, never forget what it's like to be in their position. Never forget what it's like to be junior or your first job or be in middle management. Don't forget what that looks like. Remember the amount of knowledge and access that you have, the amount of privilege that you have, that you're in a different space, you know, financially, maturation-wise, all of these things. Never lose sight of what it feels like to be that person. There's a poem uh, that me and you both know called If by Rudyard Kipling. If you can walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. And that's really, really important as a leader. I appreciate that. Beautifully said. I love that. That was, I think, as CMO, I think Everett really lived by this. His team was 
always so inspired and complimentary of Harvard's leadership. It's been tough shoes for our interim CMO to fill. <laughs> Thank you. As the CEO. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that's totally right. I think the ability as a leader to to lead, you're not, you know, you're not right alongside your team in the same way. You you need to sort of be able to step up and understand the broader landscape of challenges and opportunities. And, you know, I, I do see some leaders that try to keep working like they were before they were leaders, try to, you know, do the same work as their team and, you know, roll up their sleeves and um, kind of shy away from taking on the authority and the responsibility of being a leader out of, I think, all the right instincts, out of humility, out of wanting to show like, I'm, I'm one of you, I get you. And yet I think you do a disservice to your team if you don't also figure out the right sort of leadership style and voice that you need to feel like you can really empower your team and step up and bridge that gap between having all the context and power that you have as an executive and still be in touch with what people are going through, still be a good listener, still take that feedback and also be able to inspire, you know, be able to coach and train and develop. And that's something I think only as a leader you can do. Um, and that takes a lot of confidence, I think, to be able to to do and not, you know, I think it takes a long time for empathetic leaders to figure out the right tone and voice to do that in an authentic way. Totally agree with you. There are certain things only time and experience will give you. And uh, I don't believe that people have to serve a certain amount of time or experience to check a box. But to your point around empathy, Elisa, I, I do believe that's something that experience will t- teach you over time. I just want to say on record, thank you both thank you. Uh, for being here. It is not easy to get you know, such high-powered leaders together. And I know you could literally be spending your time anywhere else, but it's so important for folks to be able to hear this type of leadership and hear this type of messaging because it's not common out in the ecosystem. So Elisa and Everett, thank you both. Thank you so much, Everett and Elisa, for joining me. And thank you to all of our listeners. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. And if you really like what you heard, give the show a follow and share it with a friend. We'd really appreciate it. Special thanks to our production partner, Wonder Media Network. Our producer is Brittany Martinez. Our supporting producer is Sarah Schleed. And our production assistant is Lila Watts. Our greenhouse producer is Marnie Williams. Until next time. And remember, keep putting people first.